in the previous episode, I had the chance to have a chat with Dr. J.T. Bridges over the question, can artificial intelligence really be intelligent? Now, I realize that the conversation went very deep, very fast, as often happens when philosophers discuss anything. We just briefly touched on a lot of really important issues related to AI and the philosophy of mind, issues that I think are worth revisiting and unpacking. So that's what I'm going to be doing over the next several episodes. We'll be taking a look at some of the philosophical views about the nature of the human mind that are currently controlling both the popular level as well as the scholarly discussion related to artificial intelligence. So join me over the next few episodes of Think for Christ as we consider AI and the mind. It seems to me, it's my observation, that the predominant view in popular culture today is that a computer, or a computer along with the program that it's running, if sufficiently advanced and sophisticated, can become sentient, can become conscious or intelligent. Many today believe that we will one day create a thinking machine. And there are even some who are convinced that we already have created a thinking machine in the, the form of a, a highly advanced large language model, or more commonly known as a chatbot. There's a lot of these going around today. There's Google's Bard, for example, or OpenAI's ChatGPT. Now, I don't know how the idea of an intelligent robot strikes you, but it strikes me as utterly ridiculous. Sorry, the idea just seems to me to be completely nonsense. And I hope to show you some of the reasons why I think this way as this series unfolds. But most people, I think, would disagree with me here. But why? Why do so many in our culture today take the idea of a sentient machine so seriously? Why is it such a popular belief? Well, I've thought about this a little bit, and I think there are several powerful factors that are influencing people's beliefs about AI. First, of course, there's the name itself, artificial intelligence. Now, some people think that this is an apt name because it clearly says that what we have here is artificial intelligence. It's not the real McCoy. But I think that the name does more harm than good because it seems to imply that intelligence can be manufactured, that it can be reproduced in an artifact and if it were up to me, and of course it's not, I'd rather we call it something like advanced algorithmic processing or super computation. Now, I know these names aren't nearly as fun or sexy as artificial intelligence, but at least we'd have a term that was neutral and that didn't suggest machine sentience. Of course, a major factor influencing belief today regarding AI is the power of the human imagination, especially at work in science fiction. I mean, just think for a moment about all the novels, movies, and shows that have included robot or computer sentience. I mean, seriously, think about it. You can probably name right now at least a dozen intelligent robots that you've seen in the movies. 
I remember growing up, one of my favorite movies was Short Circuit. Remember number five, Johnny Five, the robot that gets struck by lightning and becomes sentient? Then, of course, there's C-3PO in Star Wars. There's the Terminator. There's Data in the Star Trek series. And then there is the Avengers movie, uh, Age of Ultron, which includes two sentient machines, Ultron and Vision. The suggestive power of the imagination is amplified in our day by our ability to bring to life anything that we can imagine on a screen. But we need to be very careful here. Just because we can imagine something doesn't mean that what we are imagining is actually possible. I mean, after all, I can imagine a pair of pants walking around my house without anybody in them. I can imagine the pen on my desk suddenly sprouting wings and flying away. I can imagine a hot dog having feelings. And I can imagine a robot that suddenly becomes sentient and conscious. Here's the important lesson. Imagination is not a reliable guide to reality. I think what I've said so far explains the widespread belief in our culture that artificial intelligence can become actual intelligence. But what about the academics? Why do so many computer scientists, cognitive scientists, and even philosophers believe in the possibility of a sentient AI? Well, first of all, let me just make the obvious point that having a PhD doesn't somehow exempt a person from the powerful influence of the imagination writ large by Hollywood. Professional academics are still human beings after all, and are themselves influenced by culture just like everybody else. But of course, we would expect those who are experts in these various fields to be able to give us a better reason or warrant for their belief in the possibility of sentient AI, rather than just pointing to the Avengers movies. Now, I'm convinced that there is something deeper going on here. I think that undergirding this belief, especially among professional academics, is a certain philosophical view about the nature of reality. It goes by different names, but I'm going to call it here physical reductionism. Now, for all the philosophers who may be listening, a caveat. I'm fully aware that one can reject physical reductionism and still argue for the possibility of a sentient AI. So chill out. Two things. First, this is a broad introductory look at some issues in the philosophy of mind that will largely be operating with generalities. And second, it seems to me that physical reductionism is the most powerful motivation for the widespread belief in sentient AI today, especially among computer and cognitive scientists. So what is physical reductionism? Well, let's start with a broad working definition, and then we'll zoom in as we go. Physical reductionism, also just sometimes called physicalism or materialism, says that everything that exists is ultimately reducible to, or at least supervenient upon, the fundamental entities and properties postulated by physics. In the next episode, I'll have more to say about the word physical as it functions in this term. But here I want to focus in on the word reductionism. Now, the idea of reductionism should be a, a fairly familiar one to us, because there's a, a kind of benign um, reductionism that's at work in the hard sciences that is related to, um, but it's not identical to, the philosophical position that we're calling physical reductionism. 
And I think that seeing this kind of scientific reductionism at work can help us better understand the philosophical position that I'm calling physical reductionism. As our knowledge of the world has advanced, we've gradually come to see that the average-sized material objects of which we are familiar, like cats and dogs and tables and sandwiches and humans, are composed of much smaller bits of matter, and that those small bits of matter are themselves composed of even smaller bits of matter. So when it comes to the hard sciences, which study the physical properties of things, it's possible to reduce biology, which studies living substances, including, including their body parts and the interactions among their body parts, to chemistry, which studies molecules and the chemical reactions between them. And then we can further reduce chemistry to physics, which studies the building blocks of molecules, atoms, and their basic components and interactions. We can think about scientific reductionism as the project of progressively zooming in on the structure of the material world. We're trying to get down to the smallest bits of material reality, of which every physical body is composed. And this project has been enormously useful, since the more we've been able to understand about the nature of the microphysical world, the better we've become at predicting and controlling material objects. And it's our knowledge and control of the quantum realm, in particular, that has given us the technological revolution which birthed our modern world. So this scientific effort of reductionism, which seeks to uncover the fundamental building blocks of matter, and that has been so useful for technological advancement, must be distinguished from the philosophical claim of physical reductionism. Scientific reductionism is not in the business of making claims about the ultimate nature of reality. After all, science itself is merely a tool. It's a tool that we use to study physical reality, and it is therefore not meant to say anything about non-physical reality, if such, a re if such a reality exists. Physical reductionism, on the other hand, is not a scientific theory. It's a philosophical one. And unlike scientific reductionism, it is making a claim about the nature of ultimate reality. According to physical reductionism, all of reality is reducible to the fundamental entities and properties of physics. There is nothing more to reality than what physics says that there is. Absolutely everything that exists is reducible to physics. Not just rocks and trees and birds and kangaroos, but humans too. Everything in the universe is reducible to the inner workings of the quantum realm. Now I want you to appreciate the radical nature of this claim for the human mind in particular. Since according to physical reductionism, the only things that exist are physical things, physical properties. The human mind, your mind, is ultimately nothing more than the physical stuff between your ears. Now, this, of course, means that your thoughts, say the thought that you're having right now, that this sounds ridiculous, that thought is nothing more than some kind of physical event in your brain, like the firing of an axon or the passing of an electrical current in a neural network. Now, according to physical reductionism, your brain, like everything else in reality, can be reduced to the fundamental bits of matter, 
and the interactions between them. And because your mind is nothing over and above the physical goings-on in your brain, your mental states are nothing over and above those physical goings-on. So why would physical reductionism lend itself to the belief that AI could become sentient or conscious or intelligent? Well, think about it. If the mental is reducible to the material, if the mind is just another aspect of physical reality, then it should be possible, at least in principle, to deconstruct the physical goings-on of the brain of which mental states are made, and then to recreate those goings-on in some other physical system, perhaps one made out of silicone rather than carbon. In other words, it would be theoretically possible on this view to reverse engineer the physical interactions in the brain that make up human intelligence, and then to replicate those physical interactions in some other physical system that isn't a brain, like a computer. And this, this just follows, right? I mean, after all, if physical reductionism is true, then at the end of the day, all you are already is just a highly complex biological machine. I mean, you're already nothing more than a kind of, of a moist robot. So for the physical reductionist, the question of whether a machine can ever be intelligent already has an answer. Just look in the mirror. Now, if you're like me, the view that the mind is nothing over and above the physical interactions that are going on in the brain, this is going to seem really implausible just on the face of it. And I think most of us would resist this idea, at least when it comes to our mental lives. So it may be surprising for you to learn, then, that this ideology of physical reductionism is, in one form or another, extremely popular today among cognitive scientists and philosophers of mind. In fact, I think it's safe to say that it's probably the most popular view on offer among academics who study the mind or the brain. So what does this project look like? How exactly do we go about reducing the mental to the physical? Well, over the last 70 years or so, there have been several versions of physical reductionism that have been offered by philosophers concerned with the nature of the mind. And so what we're going to do here is just briefly survey some of these primary reductionist theories. So first there was the effort to reduce the mental to behavior, a view called behaviorism. Now, this project is just as it sounds. It's the attempt to explain mental states and processes in terms of observable behavioral dispositions. So to say that something has a mind is just to say that it has certain behavioral dispositions. So, for example, when you have the conscious experience of pain, the behaviorist will reduce this seemingly internal mental experience to your outward reactions and responses, such as, I don't know, you're wincing, you're moaning, you're crying, uh, maybe your verbal responses. You say, ouch, or maybe something worse. So for the behaviorist, every mental state can be likewise reduced to certain behavioral outputs that are caused by certain environmental inputs. And that's all there is to it. The mind is nothing more than observable behavior. There's no need on this view to appeal to any mental states or processes that are internal to a person. Now, you may be thinking, this view is really stupid. And you'd be right. It is. 
In fact, it fizzled out in the 1950s and 60s, and today there's hardly any behaviorists around anymore. So let's move on. Whereas behaviorism is the effort to reduce the mental to behavior, the next view represents the effort to reduce the mental to the brain, a view called the identity theory. The identity theory is the attempt to identify mental states and processes with the physical states and processes of the brain. For the identity theorist, the mind just is the brain, and mental states are just physical events within the brain. Now, it's important to understand that we're dealing with identity here, and not just merely with correlation or causation. Identity theorists are not saying that the brain causes some mental state, or that some mental state is affected by or correlated with some brain state. Rather, they're saying that your mental states are exactly the same as your brain states. They're identical. Now, to see this, I want you to try this. Form a thought right now in your mind. Say the thought that two plus two equals four. You got it? Now, the identity theorist wants to say that this thought that you just had, that two plus two equals four, just is some physical aspect of your brain. Your thought is an electrical event in your head, a cluster of neurons, the firing of an axon, or what have you. And if I were to have looked inside your head just now and observed the neural uh, and electrical activity that was taking place when you were thinking the thought, two plus two equals four, I would have been literally looking at your thought, that two plus two equals four. Now, if this view doesn't strike you as radical or shocking, I'd submit that you haven't really understood it. So you should probably rewind this video and watch it again until it sinks in. Now, although the identity theory is still very popular among computer and cognitive scientists. Most philosophers have moved away from it, and this for good reason. There are many powerful arguments that have been leveled against it. Consider this one that goes by the name multiple realizability. Think about the conscious experience of having pain again. Let's say you stub your toe and you experience the pain. You have certain mental and bodily reactions to the pain. The identity theorist wants to say that the pain that you are having is nothing more than some kind of physical event in your brain, the firing of C-fibers or what have you. Now, the problem is that humans are not the only animals that experience pain. Lots of animals that are very different from each other and that have very different brains apparently also experience pain. Now, if you have a dog, for example, you are no doubt aware that there are times when it seems that the dog is having a conscious experience of pain, just like you do. But now there's a problem. How can we identify some conscious state, like the mental experience of pain, with some particular kind of brain process or event? If that same conscious experience can be realized in brains that are vastly different from each other. Now, from what I've been told, the octopus has a brain that is radically different than the human brain. There are very few similarities between the two. And yet, an octopus, it seems as if, is in obvious states of pain. If you cut one of the tentacles off, or if you poke it too much, you'll see it react as if it was in pain. Yet, if creatures with different brains than our own can experience the same conscious states that we do, like pain, fear, desire, and so on, then those conscious states cannot be identical to some physical state 
in the human brain. Now, this problem leads us to the final and by far the most popular reductionist theory of the mental. It is the effort to reduce the mental to function, a view called functionalism. Functionalism is the attempt to analyze mental states and processes in terms of the causal relations that they bear to the environmental influences that generate them and to their relations with other mental phenomena. All right, so what does this mean? Well, a good way to get at functionalism is to see it as the direct response to the problem that we just looked at, that of multiple realizability. The, this problem, again, is that it seems that certain mental states, like pain, fear, desire, can be realized across a range of radically different animal brains. In fact, we can conceive of a creature that has a brain totally unlike animals of which we are familiar, being in a state of pain, right? For example, we can imagine an alien with a silicone brain stubbing its toe and then experience, experiencing the mental state of pain. Functionalism is tailor-designed to explain how this could still work in physicalist, reductionist terms. According to functionalism, it's not the stuff of the brain or even the structure or configuration of the stuff that makes something a mental state. Rather, it's what the stuff does. It's its function that makes a mental state. Mental states are just the relations that obtain between inputs and outputs. And since it's not the stuff, but the function of the stuff that matters, mental states can be instantiated in different kinds of stuff. To see this, consider a mousetrap. Mousetraps come in a variety of forms and are made out of a variety of materials. Yet what makes a mousetrap a mousetrap is the performance of a certain function, catching mice. As long as a, a device performs the function of catching mice, well, then it's a mousetrap. Or consider the game of checkers. The game of checkers is really just an organized set of functions or rules. So you can play checkers on the board that comes in the box and with the plastic red and black checkers pieces. But these items are not essential to the game. We can swap them out if we want. We can replace the original cardboard playing board with, with a wooden one. And we can replace the original plastic pieces with metal ones if we wanted. Or we can go to the beach and carve out a checkers board in the sand. And we can use dead fish and driftwood for the pieces. The various material pieces that we use don't matter. That's the point. As long as the functional rules are able to be followed, the game of checkers is being played. In the exact same sense, according to the functionalist, something counts as a mental state whenever the function of the mental state is realized, regardless of the kind of matter or material configuration. So on functionalism, any system will have a mind when that system has a suitable functional organization between its inputs and its outputs. The functional organization of the mousetrap consists of certain input-output relations that lead to the catching of a mouse. The functional organization of the game of checkers consists of certain input-output relations that make up the rules of the game. Likewise, according to this view, something will count as a mental event when certain cause and effect relations or relations between inputs and outputs obtain. So imagine with me that an alien spacecraft lands in my backyard. The alien comes out of his ship, and I exit my house, and we approach one another, you know, so that we can have a proper greeting. And in the process, I stub my toe. There's the input. 
and then I experience pain. There's the output. Now imagine that at the very same moment, the alien stubs its toe or tentacle or, or whatever, which is the input, and then it experiences pain, the output. Although the alien's brain is completely different than mine, because we both instantiate the same functional input-output relation, we can both be said to have the conscious experience of pain. Now, on versions of functionalism that are reductionistic, a view that goes by the name uh, reductive functionalism, the causal relations, the inputs and the outputs, are realized entirely by microphysical events, so that the relations between those microphysical events is all there is to mental events. Again, the mental is nothing more on this view, nothing above and beyond the relation between material inputs and material outputs. That's why it's a, a, a version of the view of physical reductionism. So a mind on this view can be reduced to the functional relations instantiated in the brain. And the brain on this view is just an enormously uh, complex causal structure that facilitates highly complex functional relations. And there is nothing particularly special about the stuff of the human brain in this regard. Any material system that can support complex functional relations can perform the same functions that the human brain performs. All right, this is all very abstract, hard to grasp, I know. But what I want you to see are the implications of functionalism for the broader question that we're considering here related to whether or not AI can be truly intelligent. Now, some of you are no doubt already making the connections in your mind right now. As we've already seen, there are many biological functional systems in nature that can do at least some of the same things that our human brains can do, like experience pain. Now, it's important to see that functional systems on this view are not restricted to natural substances. We can and do make artificial functional systems all the time. This is a functional system. Now, for those of you listening by podcast, I'm showing a image of a calculator on the screen right now. A calculator works by receiving certain inputs, which happens when you press the buttons on the calculator. And then by displaying numbers on the screen, which is the output. And this happens according to a set of well-defined cause and effect relations. But does a calculator think or have mental states? After all, I mean, it is a functional system, right? Well, I think that most functionalists would say no, because most functionalists want to say that thinking requires a certain level of functional complexity or sophistication that goes well beyond what a typical calculator can do. But what about computers? A computer is the quintessential example of a functional system. A computer receives causal inputs that in turn modify its internal state in some way, which in turn then causes an effect or an output that consists in a visual display on a monitor. And all of this happens according to a well-defined system of cause and effect or input-output relations. And we call this input-output relational system an algorithm. Is what is happening within a sophisticated computer complex enough to count as thinking? Are we not committed to this if we believe that thinking itself is just a functional relation? Well, it seems to me that we are. In fact, reductive functionalism 
has given us what is today by far the most popular model for understanding the human mind, the computational theory of mind. According to this view, the mind is a kind of software which is run on a kind of hardware, which is the brain. The mind is the software, and the brain is the hardware, just like a computer. The computational theory reduces the mind to a computational system. So the final stop on the physical reductionist train is this. The human mind is nothing more than a kind of biological computer. Well, hopefully now you can see that if you go in for physical reductionism, and especially for its most plausible manifestation, reductive functionalism, then there won't be any reason to deny that an extremely advanced computer or robot could become fully sentient or conscious or intelligent. After all, for the physical reductionist, the difference between the human mind and a computer is only one of degree, not one of kind. They are both ultimately reducible to systems that are completely material. Moreover, if you believe, as so many do today, that the mind is a kind of software running on the hardware of the brain, then you are already committed to the idea that a sufficiently advanced computer could become intelligent because you're already committed to the idea that the human brain is a kind of advanced computer. So as I said earlier, I think that the widespread belief of the possibility of a truly intelligent AI among computer scientists, cognitive scientists, and even many philosophers of mind is grounded in and warranted by the philosophical view of physical reductionism. At the very least, I think we can say that physical reductionism makes the belief in a sentient AI plausible. But of course, for it to do this, for it to make the idea of a sentient AI more plausible, the theory has to be more than a theory. It must, in, in fact, be a true theory of the mind. If physical reductionism is false, then the prospect of a fully intelligent AI becomes far less plausible, or so it seems to me. So next time on Think for Christ, we'll take a look at some very powerful reasons for thinking that physical reductionism gets it wrong when it comes to the mind. Reasons that I think will underscore and highlight some fundamental and I think detrimental problems for any project that seeks to create intelligence from the ground up.